Well, listen, churches on the West Coast, you probably know this, they face a lot of challenges. They, uh, they live in a hostile environment. Many are quite affluent, and that may erode their message. Others there on the West Coast have been stigmatized as intolerant and narrow-minded, and some have struggled just to hold on to Jesus in the midst of such ridicule. Still others have really messed things up, and they've been stained by sexual scandal. Then you have those West Coast churches who've committed uh, themselves to sound doctrine, but they launched into theological wars based on being right at the expense of loving others. And still others who seem to just be nothing about them except their image, no spiritual depth. West Coast churches, they have a lot of challenges. But before you get really upset with me, and I've made you feel so uncomfortable right now, because you think I'm trashing all the friends in California, or Seattle, or Oregon, but actually, I'm not talking about the West Coast churches of America in the 21st century. I'm talking about the West Coast churches of Asia Minor from the first century. And in his revelation, Jesus addressed these seven churches through the Apostle John while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. The church that we first hear about in Revelation 2 is the church in Ephesus. And it's the first on the list, and they had toiled and labored and patiently endured. They had defended true Christian doctrine. They even called out false leaders. Jesus praised them for all of these things. But he also turned and rebuked them for abandoning their first love, love for God and love for other people. And then the second church was the church in Smyrna, which had seen great tribulation and would see even more. They had been slandered and harassed by those who called themselves Jews, but Jesus said they were nothing more than a synagogue for Satan. And while most would consider Smyrna to be insignificant since it was a poor church, Jesus said they were rich, which, come to think of it, is just another indication that earthly power and all the money in this world falls short from the inheritance that is promised to us by Jesus. Next, we have two churches in Pergamum and Thyatira. They had kept the faith, standing against Satan's frontal assault, Jesus said. And in the case of Thyatira, their love and faith and service and patient endurance was continuing to grow with their latter works exceeding their first. Now, wouldn't you like that to be said of you? That the things you did later in life actually exceeded love, faith, and service of those things you did at first. But even with all of that good stuff going on in these two churches, in their midst were followers of Jesus who had devolved into sexual immorality, even idolatrous mixture. Then we come to this church in Sardis and it's not a pretty sight what Jesus has to say. He speaks to them bluntly. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but I tell you, you're really dead. Man, you talk about speaking an unvarnished truth. Jesus, he just went right for the jugular. They were image conscious, but they had very little substance to show for it. 
And then the sixth church that is addressed was in Philadelphia. And it was a tiny minority group in its own town struggling just to hold on. Jesus said he knew they had little power. Yet he also commended them because they kept his word and did not deny his name. And then finally, the seventh church is in Laodicea, an affluent city whose church had grown comfortable in their own prosperity. They were claiming to be rich. They said they lacked for nothing. But Jesus pulled back the curtain and said that in fact, they were wretched. They were pitiable. They were poor, blind, and naked. These are his people, his church, and he calls them wretched. Their self-sufficiency had turned to complacency and it had rendered them useless. So seven churches in the book of Revelation, seven churches different from each other in so many ways, yet seven churches who were quite similar to the churches of today. Now, as we launch into this study, which we did last week, I want to speak this morning really more about the literary brilliance and the structure and the theme and rhythm of this letter. And it might seem a little monotonous or more instructional, but I think it will help us as we continue our study over the next few months. First, the order that these churches are given to us really kind of makes sense because they're a, a geographical order, because they come in the same order that a messenger might take in delivering the letter to them. Here you see this map, and the first city was Ephesus, and it's right on the coast. And if you left Ephesus and moved northward, you could go to Smyrna and then Pergamon, and then turning southeast to Thyatira, and then eventually Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. So you see, it was the path that that messenger probably took as he delivered this cyclical letter that all of these communities would be reading. While there is no dispute that the letter, specifically, and these seven messages, they were addressing seven real churches of their day. But it is intriguing to me that it's these for churches. I mean, these weren't the only seven. I have to ask myself out of curiosity, why not Antioch or uh, Jerusalem or Corinth or Philippi? But what may be even more intriguing about these seven is that many scholars believe that these seven churches might also represent seven major periods of church history. And that's fascinating. You see, it could be that the letter to Ephesus also is addressing the apostolic church in the first century. And it could be that the second letter to Smyrna also is addressing the persecuted church from about AD 100 up until Constantine in 313. And it could be that the Pergamon church was also a letter that was addressing the state church, the one that is a state governmental church between 313 and about 590. And it could be that the Thyatira letter was also addressing the papal church, where basically the Pope was the authority throughout the church, throughout the known world, from about 590 AD until around 1500, which is when the next letter could have taken place for the Reformed Church with Martin Luther in 1517 and all the way up to about 1730. And it could be that the sixth letter to Philadelphia 
is also going to the missionary church, which was a fascinating 200-year period, 200 period of time where missionaries were sent on all continents all around the world. And it could be that the Laodicean letter was also for something that I don't really like to call myself, but typically we are called the apostate church, which is probably what some leaders see that we are in right now, for there is much apostasy turning away in the churches that we see across our country and around the world. So that may be even more interesting, that these letters don't specifically speak to those seven local churches. They are also speaking to the church over history, and they are also speaking to the church today. Each of, of these seven messages in the Bible and Revelation follows the same basic structure or outline, and there's a few exceptions. I mean, there was a church or two that uh, were not commended for anything, and there were a couple that were not condemned for anything. But for the most part, this rhythm, this structure is carried through for each of these seven messages. In, in, the, in each one, we, the first thing we see is a greeting, and it is identical in all seven messages, except for the recipient's name that was receiving the letter. Each letter is addressed directly to the angel of the church, such as in Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Or in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? And it goes on in all seven letters, the same greeting. Now, some believe that this, is, uh, this angel that is spoken of for each of these churches is a, is a literal angel, perhaps uh, assigned by God to look over each church, and that seems reasonable. But there are others that believe that, this, it, that he's addressing a, a pastor or a primary elder in each church. And, and since the Greek word for angel means messenger, that's also possible. Next, in each of these letters, we read one of the many glorious descriptions of Jesus. And it's, it's, a, it's like it's cherry-picked from the first chapter of the book and placed in each of the seven distinct messages to these churches. For example, uh, regards to the Ephesian church, in verse 1 of Revelation 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now listen, that description of Jesus directly corresponds to something we read from chapter one in verses 12 and 13. It said, then I turned and I to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And then down in verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. So beyond this, the description of each church's situation has got this great description around who Jesus is, and we're told all about it in chapter one. And then John refers to that as he goes through these seven messages to these individual churches. But I think the most important facet is obviously the situation in each of the churches. And that's the heart of the messages to each of them. We're gonna, we're gonna take the next seven weeks and we're gonna look at those messages to those specific churches and to the church universal, even the church today. 
but it's prefaced each of these situations by two simple words. Jesus says to each of these seven churches, I know, I know. Like in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. To the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. To the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. To the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. To the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And the church in Philadelphia, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And finally, to the church in Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus not only knows what he's talking about, he knows us. What he knows is personal. It's first-hand knowledge. And this directly relates to his omniscience, which is just a really big theological term that means he has perfect knowledge of all things. He doesn't have to learn anything, and he has never forgotten anything. God doesn't have to find out things or, or learn them over time or see them on your social media post or reason with us in order to become aware. His knowledge is absolute and it's unacquired. He knows everything that's happened, everything that will, and even those things we have yet to discover. But the thing that impresses me the most with him having complete knowledge is not just that he has knowledge from afar, but that it comes out of a personal relationship he has with us. He knows because he came near in the incarnation and he is still coming near. He's walking among the seven churches. The, the imagery is that he is standing and walking among these seven lampstands. He's not far off. He's right there in the middle of them. And, and it's a vivid picture of Jesus walking among us and knowing firsthand what's going on with his people. He is not um, an absentee ruler. He's not missing. Uh, he's not far off and removed from us. No, he is very present by the Holy Spirit and he intimately knows his church. So it's not just that he knows from afar, he knows up close and personal. And, and this knowledge leads Jesus in these letters to commend five of these seven churches for their faith and their perseverance and their service and their love and their good works. Man, I want, I want God to commend us as a church as a community of faith. I want God to commend the church here in our country and around the world. It would be really cool and amazing 
if he would do that. And, and I believe there are many things worth commendation. But here's the sobering part. Because of those five churches he commends, three of them, he adds a serious rebuke. And it starts with him saying this, I have this against you. I have this against you. You've done great over here. You've kept the faith. You've persevered. In some instances, you've even loved well, but I have this against you. When you hear Jesus say to you, I know your works and in so many areas you're doing well, but I have this against you, it's time to pay attention to what he's saying. When he says something like that, we have only one good option, and that is to repent and to come back to him as he intended us to be. The thing we need to remember from today's message, it's neat about all the structure and the and the rhythm and the literary vehicle. But what we need to remember is that Jesus knows us and loves us. And because he does, he disciplines us. He calls out those he loves. He doesn't let them stay in their sin, in their error, in their missing the mark. He loves us too much to leave us alone. And he says it best, really, when he's addressing the Laodicean church, which we'll get to in several weeks. He says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now listen, we've been famous for using that verse as an evangelistic verse. Behold, he stands at the door of anyone that doesn't know him and he's knocking. Open the door and he'll come in. But that's not the context of that verse. That verse is spoken to his people, the ones he loves, but the ones that he is reproving and disciplining and is calling to repentance. He is standing at the door of the American church right now and he is knocking and he's serious. Do you hear his voice? Do you hear the knock? Jesus disciplines those he loves and it comes out of a personal relationship. It's it's not far off. It's firsthand knowledge for he is walking among us. He is moving among us. He is desiring to use us and not have to discard us. I wonder what we might hear him saying to us today. I wonder if we received this letter from the Apostle John while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, what he would say to Covenant Life Church in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I wonder what he would say to the American church, to the worldwide church. With all that we're facing today with with COVID and the uncertainties of sickness and with fear and whether we should go out and continue to live our lives and what all that means, the isolation, the division, the hatred, the bigotry, 
the privilege, the anarchy, the disruption. What is Jesus saying to us? There might, there might be some commendation for the church. I bet there's also some rebuke. We might hear him say, I know your works of love and faith and service and perseverance. You're doing better than when you started. But we might also hear him say, but I have some things against you. We, we might be commended for our standing for the truth, but we might also be chastised for abandoning our first love. And in some cases, we might be proud of our reputation for being alive, when in reality, we're really dead inside. And that while much of the American church might think itself to be rich and prosperous and having no needs at all, that we have it all together, that we have the power, that we are called to prosper in this day, we might find out that Jesus sees it differently. And he might call us wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. The good news is that his discipline comes out of his love. He disciplines those he loves. I feel his discipline these days. I, I feel him ripping things out of our hands in order that we might put our hand to his plow and not look back. I feel him challenging me to repent in areas that I didn't even realize were missing the mark. But the more my eyes are opened to what his standard is and how I fall short, I want to be zealous in my repentance. And I hear the, the Lord Jesus standing at the church's door. I, I feel like he is standing here and he is knocking And if we will be zealous in our repentance, if we will have zeal towards turning from our wicked ways and our selfish perspective and our lack of love and our unwillingness to go the second mile and give the cloak when they've taken the tunic and to turn the other cheek, then I believe we will hear his voice and he will be there at the door, and as we open it, he will come in, and we will be healed, and we will be restored. And the American church, though smaller than what it has been, more purified and pruned by the word of God, the American church will be made useful once again. Yes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to ask my wife to come and we're going to pray. Allow for her to share anything that she has on her heart. This has been a rich time that we've been able to do this together. And so I'm always grateful that she really does, along with me, process these things. And so share with us what you have on your heart. I so... Um bear witness in my spirit to what you're saying about the timing of God's discipline and rebuke. Um, there's a verse in Proverbs 10, 17 that says, whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, hmm. but whoever ignores correction 
leads others astray. Wow. And I just feel like that is so serious. Um, I want to make sure if God is, is out of his love, redirecting us, reestablishing priorities, adjusting our values, telling us these things are no longer acceptable and give your hand to this. It is so imperative that each one of us respond to him in our hearts, zealous, as Chris said, for, for obedience, um, because it's not just our lives that are at stake. If we respond, if we receive his correction, we show others the path to life. Yeah. Not only do we get to experience the abundant life, but we get to be a part of somebody else experiencing the abundance of life. Hmm. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I have people on my list. <laughs> I have people on my list that I've been hmm. praying for for a very long time exactly. that I want them to come into the abundance. Yeah. And I don't want to miss this opportunity to show the path to life. Yes. So I want to be, I want to submit to his correction, not just because it's easier for me, um, but because it's good for them. So let's pray together about the folks on our list yes. who can be impacted by our choices today. Yes. Father, thank you that you have ordered it this way, that you love us, and because you love us, you discipline us. And when you discipline us, you give us the power to choose. Yes, you give us the power to obey. Mm -hmm. And when we obey, that gives us an authority in your name and under your kingship yes. to show others the path to life. Yes. We want to live the abundant life you died to give us, but mm -hmm. so much more desperately, Father, we want others to live. And we don't want the things in our lives to show others the, the door to destruction. Mm. So I ask, Father, that you would help this conviction that you've brought this morning stick. We'll be so easily distracted by the things of the world. Um, even today, in celebrating and doing the things that it takes to make dads feel special, we can take our eyes off of you. So I ask that by the Spirit, you would imprint this word on our hearts. Mm -hmm. And as we journey through these next weeks with Chris teaching us about the individual letters and the opportunities to repent, mm -hmm. that you will build in us a habit of repentance. Yes. That we will be quick yes. to receive your conviction and the mercy that comes with it. And that you, we would find this time of correction to be incredibly fruitful yes. in us yes. and in our communities and with the people that we love and care for. Yes, Lord. Make your word be true to us, Father. Yes, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are moving among us, that you did not divorce yourself from the church, mm. but you choose to stay in. Uh, you stay in it and in, in active among us. And we pray that your movement in us and around us and through us and your word to us would bring us back to the point of obedience. I ask, Lord, that we would not become useless yes. because of complacency, because of um, 
self-sufficiency, because of having no needs at all where we never have to come to you. I pray, Father, that we will not be about our image and have no substance. Mm. I pray, Father, that we would be those who love like we first loved. And I ask, Lord, that you would use us for your glory. We are your vessels. And we are often reminded, like Jamie reminds us, that it is Christ in us that is the hope of glory. So use us, we pray, as we turn back to you. I pray for the church in our city. I ask, Lord, that you would break the barriers and the walls of division. I pray, Father, that you would cause unity, that the people around us in our communities and city and nation would know that we are your Christians, your followers, by our love one for another. And Lord, help us to be ministers of reconciliation in these days, ambassadors of Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you will bless our fathers, Bless our families, Lord, for those who do not have fathers who have gone on or who do not have them in their presence. I pray that you will especially encourage them today. Lift them up because you are the father to the fatherless. Yes. And so, Lord, I pray a blessing upon our family, our spiritual family, our children, and all that you give us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Mm. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. Yes, we do. Bless you.